This week on FX Guide TV. We visit New Deal Studios in Los Angeles to look at the amazing miniature work they did in stereo on the new film Hugo for Martin Scorsese. This and more coming up next. Hello, I'm Angie Dell, and we have a great show for you this week as we look at the new Martin Scorsese film, Hugo, with New Deal Studios. Now, the film has many great aspects, from brilliant stereo work to stunning anti-aging effects. But one shot that we just loved was a reference to the historical train derailment from 1895 of the Granville Paris Express. Now, the real train overran the buffer stop. The engine careered across almost 100 feet of the station concourse, crashed through a two-foot-thick wall, shot across a terrace and sailed out of the station, plummeting onto the Place de Rennes over 33 feet below, where it stood on its nose. To film this, Scorsese and VFX supervisor Rob Legato turned to New Deal Studios to recreate the event. Not roughly, but painstakingly accurately, in a quarter-scale miniature to exactly match the original. What's your name, boy? Hugo. Hugo Cabret. I got an email from, from Rob on July 3rd, 2010, with this really fantastic train crash from 1895. And he said, we want to do this. <laughs> what do you think of this? And uh, I just basically you know, figured out essentially what scales to use and knowing the sequence, Rob explained what the sequence was and uh, it was pretty clear on, on what they were looking for. And we broke it all down and we probably turned uh, you know, sort of estimates and uh, kind of concepts around in, in a matter of days. And um, yeah, for that specific sequence. And then the other sequence is where uh, Jude Law uh, ends up dying. It's a flashback to his death. And he opens up a stairwell door and a huge fireball comes up through the door. And that was done as a, a miniature as well for that sequence. So when we're looking at a miniature uh, and it's just going to be a, an establishing shot, for example, the materials don't matter too much because obviously if it looks good to camera, it works. Right. The thing about the train crash that I think is interesting is that you need to make it break Yes. So that it works in terms of its form before it breaks, but right. also its, its solidity is correct. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's actually, that's the biggest challenge in all miniature effects is, as you said, if we're just showing, showing establishing where it's a motion control shot, we're just flying through a city, um, those materials, just as long as they scale correctly, correctly visually, then it works fine. Uh, the train crash was quite a unique challenge, not just for materials, but the sheer physics of it. Uh, our mechanical effects supervisor, Scott Beverly, uh, studied the photograph and I went through what we had to engineer and come to this end point. Because when I spoke to Rob, he said, you know, the train is coming through here, it's got to look completely real, it's got a nose in. And Marty loved the photograph. He said, this is, this is a really fantastic image. In fact, I think it was uh, Rob had brought him the photo initially and, and kind of pitched the idea. And the concept was, he loves the photograph. It has to look exactly like this when it lands. It, it isn't something where you see a crash, you cut to three different angles, and then you cut to here and dust is clearing. You had to see the whole thing in the shot happen and land in the position. So uh, Scott Beverly, our mechanical effects supervisor, had engineered the hinge, hinge points and counterweights and we had a giant pneumatic cylinder that would drive the train. It had to start sort of from zero. It had to be an instant acceleration because we didn't have a lot of run-up and we didn't want a lot of run-up because we wanted to hit it really, really hard and really fast. Clear. Three, two, one. build everything digitally first. It's, it's funny because everybody says, hey guys, build models, and we do a fair amount of digital effects, but we build everything digitally. Uh, in fact, the train model 
that uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Patrick Dunbaker, who, who's working for us, uh, modeled, uh, ended up going to Pixel Mondo for a, a visual effects supervisor, uh, Ben Grossman, used that as, I think, their train model, and then they mapped textures of the photographic model onto that. I mean, certainly, you know, you've got carpenters building sets and, and model makers building parts. There's going to be something here off a 30-second here and there. But for the most part, uh, the guys are pretty pretty dead on to the, to the computer models. So we give those back to Ben, and then once the train is finished as a miniature, Ben sent his team down to do photographs of all angles to get all the textures and everything else. I mean, I know I'm sure he created quite a fair amount of it digitally with the lighting, but this way he now has exactly what was in the shot as a physical miniature. And uh, I saw actually a TV commercial the other day where you see sort of a high three-quarter of the digital model coming through the train, coming through the station, and then you cut to a low angle of the miniature hitting uh, a column, and it's pretty seamless. I mean, I think it looks pretty darn good, and Ben did a great job. So it's really just about where, you know, it's, it's again, it's this back and forth of, okay, this is what you're creating to get the shot approved. Now we'll take that, and then we build upon what we need to get, and then once we're done, we hand it back. And so it was a really great um, uh, synergy. It, it always is, and it's, it's, I wish more films were like that, but uh, it's, it's good. I mean, um, from my point of view, the, the fact that you're using miniatures in stereo is really interesting. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But separate to the stereo, I always think it's really interesting how you can get the, like, not the facade to look good, but the facade's contents as yeah. it shatters to look good. Because it would be completely hokey if the front paint sure. revealed the material wasn't stone kind of thing. Well, we, it, it's always, really good at that. It's, well, thank you. It's always a challenge. I mean, that's, but there is, there's certain conventions you're like, okay, these materials work, these materials don't work. This works, this doesn't work. And I will say that every time we've ever done a show, it's never the same, ever. You can say, oh, well, we've done this on this show, we've done this, but I don't think even, <clears throat> you know, I looked to the, the train crash versus the, the plane crash in Aviator, it was night and day. Similar moments, similar uh, effects, and maybe some materials used, but it's completely different, and it was a... Uh... Let me ask you this, because in my world, in, in <clears throat> digital effects, I used to always say, how do you know you could pull that off? And I'd say, well, absolutely, I don't know I can pull it off. I just know I've got a good set of tools and team that stand a good chance of pulling it off. And right. I assume it's kind of the same for you, isn't it? It is. I, I think that the, the fortunate thing, and I will say this, and I, and I say this to every director I work with and every supervisor and every producer, the fortunate thing about miniature effects and um, physical effects, on the creative side for a director or supervisor, it is, it'll look real, I guarantee you. On a producer's side, it is, I guarantee you it's not going to go over budget because this is as real as it's going to get and you can't tweak it once we're done. They, so they both love those two sides of it, which is true because once we crash a train, you can't, I mean, certainly, listen, this could go into the digital pipeline and somebody can sit there and add debris and whatever, but in the grand scheme of things, one of the things I really enjoy about the miniature work still is that there is a certain amount of imperfection and a certain amount of spontaneity that happens. And that's what makes those shots look that much more real. You don't have to create a, a particle system or write some code as to how debris is going to tumble. It just does. I always joke and say, we get it for free because that's kind of how it's going to work. Now, there is a lot of engineering and testing. I mean, one of the things we do a fair amount is testing. I mean, we'll test something 20 times before we ever show up on stage. And every time, there's, I, I can honestly tell you, there's never been a point where we get in front of a camera and we've never done it before, just because it's a waste of everyone's time. We need to make sure it works. And we also build so much mechanical destruction into what appears to be physical and or pyro destruction that we know it's gonna work regardless. It's not relying on just a pyrotechnic or just, there's a mechanical component to it that will do whatever it needs to do. Um, 
but but in terms of like I know it will work with I, I'm pretty yeah I, I don't want to say we're overly confident but there is a certain point where we know certain things has to have to happen the hardest thing we deal with is where you deal with a previs that a director and a studio absolutely loves and backs and then says we want it to look like that and there's things that physically cannot happen and so you have to kind of but but they want it to be miniature or they want it to be in camera and so that's where it's always good to get us involved from day one particularly even excuse me, doing, doing the previs itself, because we'll never put a camera scraping through the ground. And if we do, we can build around it. But that happens quite often, as you'll get previs that the camera is doing something that it just physically in no world could. If it's all digital, sure, do whatever you want. I mean, you can. But, you know, my favorite is I'll have some, some snaking camera shot that comes around a thing, and when you actually look at the camera path from some omnipotent point of view, you clearly see the camera is going through the object. And I always say to the artist, well, how are we supposed to shoot this, you know? And, and sometimes in motion control, you can. You can cut stuff away and stop the camera and put the camera on the other side. But for mechanical effects, um, it's always, or, or high-speed action, it's always very, very, uh, it's paramount that every single moment that's figured out has been thought through before we get to construction or building or engineering, because a lot of times it can't happen. But we've had some shows where um, a physical effect had to be a certain way in the previs, and, every, and the problem is that previs gets disseminated to everyone. And they're like, oh, we love it, it's great. And then it comes in my lap, and they're like, okay, make it look just like this. And I'm like, uh, this is going to be, uh, you're defying every law of physics here, and I can't really do it. But the reverse engineer challenge, too, is like this train crash. I mean, just to talk about a similar train crash, for the movie Hancock, there's a train that wraps around uh, Will Smith. And they built the, f the, the full-scale train wrapped around Will Smith well before we started the show. And they said, okay, it has to look like this. So we had to build a train that looked perfect from the front, and then crashed and wrapped around and crumpled real time in camera and then ended in the position and looked just like how the full scale set that was already finished looked. So it's that sort of challenge of. Which is making the random kind of work against you. It is, but it actually worked quite well. Um, the shot was good, don't get me wrong. But. Well, what's interesting is that um, it was, it was, uh, it, it, it would, yeah, you're absolutely right. The random <coughs> part was, uh, was sort of thrown out the window. But it's, you still have the random things falling off and that sort of stuff, but the actual physical thing, it was, it was a little bit of a challenge. Uh, but at any rate, um, the trick was finding materials that break in the correct scale. Uh, we used real glass for all the windows. All the windows had separate window panes for the impact. Uh, all the lead work that was done for the window mullions and muttons was all done out of real lead and all hand soldered. Uh, the crew chief, uh, model crew chief for the whole project, Forrest Fisher, would research all the materials, what we could get that would work the best. And we've done this sort of effect many times, but again, every time we do it, it's a different sort of effect. You know, this isn't a brick wall. It was all... Uh, this train station was theoretically built out of large stone blocks. So how do we illustrate that when it breaks through the, in the real shot or the real historical um, photograph? You see the train come out of the window, uh, obviously it's a still, but uh, you could see that the weight of the train, the thing weighed probably a couple hundred tons, crashed through uh, the, the balcony, which was all done out of breakaway plasters and different mixes of plaster to give that right break. Uh, but then the weight of it actually crushes this balcony. You can see actually that just it probably got out to a sort of a cantilevered point then landed, and then of course noses in. And the trick too is that the train doesn't explode and it doesn't you know, ripple through destruction, it doesn't crush. There were certain areas that we used a lot of very heavy gauge and, and thin gauge lead um, to illustrate you know, plate iron and, and plate steel at that time that would crush and we would pull that off for our second take because we ended up having to do this of course twice uh, and also lots of testing prior. Uh, but the materials of choice is the biggest, uh, biggest challenge with these things, but it's the physics that is the 
that'll make or break a model shot. And, you know, I mean, we have real gravity, fortunately. It's not like we're trying to engineer a digital model to do a certain thing. But on the flip side, because we're shooting at a higher frame rate and because we're shooting, um, you know, from, from specific angles, you know, certain rigging we couldn't have in the shot. So you have to kind of make things go faster. Things have to happen more violently because when played back at 24 FPS, it has to look like it's full scale. Can you go through the uh, ballpark maths on the scale that it was done at and obviously the scale and the speed ratios and the shooting ratios? We ended up doing uh, everything in quarter scale and you know to, to scale a model uh, usually take the scale, uh, square root of the scale and multiply that by whatever frame rate you shot live action or want to appear it's played back at live action. That doesn't necessarily, that's, that's sort of the, where you start, that's kind of the, the, the methodology going, okay well that's kind of what it'll work mathematically. But, it never really works that way. In, in the case of this shot, um, you know, it was quarter scale, so square root of two is two multiplied by uh, 24, you get 48 frames a second. But we ended up shooting it around, I think it was like 50 or 52, because we wanted just, it was just a little bit more slowly. And it was photographed uh, all 3D. This is also kind of exciting for us, because while we've been shooting uh, quite a bit of stereoscopic films, in terms of elements and other things, it was sort of the first big event we've ever photographed as a 3D you know, film, uh, or three, with 3D cameras. So it was the, uh, they used the uh, Pace Cameron rigs with Alexa cameras. And, uh, and it was pretty cool, because since miniatures are physical in-camera things, you know, to, to compose a shot in 3D and look at the glass, you know, put on a pair of glasses and look at a monitor and be able to compose that into a 3D environment is kind of pretty exciting because it's, it's literally instantly 3D. It's not like you have to render it out, you have to go through that process. Um, so we estimated how fast roughly the train would be going in the historical data of how the train originally crashed. Uh, they were late coming to the station, so there's a series of waypoints that the engineer would start applying brakes and he sort of held off on that. This is again in, this back in 1895. And so by holding off on applying the brakes, the train came, in, came into the station much, much quicker. When they did apply the brakes, they had either was a, I think it was like a pneumatic or hydraulic cylinder fail and, uh, or, or valve fail, and then the train just literally had no brakes. So assuming that they would have crashed from the rails through some concrete and some other details and, and tile and such, the train was sort of slowing. Rob had said, you know, it, it shouldn't look like it's like going full speed. It needs to look like it's sort of slowing down. So we ended up using a, a relatively large pneumatic piston. Um, it's sort of a, what's called a cable cylinder that had a three to one pull ratio so that when, it's, when the train is being pulled for as length of pull that it's uh, being pulled on the cable uh, is about three times, going through a series of uh, pulleys and shivs, it's about three times the distance because it's a three to one. Uh, to give you an example of how much force was on this, this is usually used for full-scale car throws. They'll take full-scale automobiles and use this cylinder in physical effects to throw cars. Uh, Scott Beverly engineered a, uh, a track where the, the train obviously rode on this track, so it actually ran, rode on rails, and it was the last car, which was a baggage car, that was connected to the, uh, the physical uh, uh, pickup. It was like a skate that ran on a rail, and it, was, it never would come off the skate. That was one of the big things, too, is that if we just were to throw this outside of the, um, the, uh, the window, the inertia, would, it would nose in, and then the inertia at the back of the train would have kept going and it would have flipped over. So it was really important that we were able to, 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 to retard the end of it so it kind of stopped. But we also couldn't have it just stop and shake. It had to look like it was coming to a stop as the train was nosing in. Uh, in addition to the, um, the physical effects of making this thing do what it needs to do crashing, Scott also engineered a great steam system, which he took a, a old mole smoker and uh, along with uh, Roy Good, who was uh, doing welding and, and uh, fabrication with us, uh, managed to put it on a cam system so that every time the wheels, pistons, or the drive rods would push, steam would come out of each side of the train. It was, it was great. I mean, it was like, you know, it's like a giant toy, but it was, uh, it was pretty good. And 
in scale, we chose quarter scale. I felt that the train in real life isn't really that terribly large. So the engine and all the cars ended up being about 16 and a half feet long. So really nice scale for the debris and the action, um, but not so big that it was impossible to manage. So one of the keys of shooting a miniature textbook wise is obviously we want to have lots of depth of field because yes. we don't want to have anything that gives away that idea that it is small. But shooting stereoscopically, you had this whole extra dimension, which is the stereo is a very good depth indicator to me as to how big something is. Right. For you personally, when you saw it, obviously after the pace guys had set the correct inter-axial and uh, convergence point, did it feel big? Was it exciting to see it sort of yeah. get that extra dimension? It, absolutely. I mean, that was sort of what was really compelling was uh, Rob did a, a beautiful job lighting it. So you have this really beautiful backlight, a sort of soft light over top, and you have this really I mean, the details are great. We had grease dripping off of the train and all these little details that make miniatures so photographically real because you get, well, one, it's, you're photographing it, so it's automatically going to be real. Uh, but seeing a model shot in 3D, again, I had, we had done some inserts and some other things for a few other pictures over the summer, um, but to shoot a big event like this was, was pretty cool because you do get the depth. Again, the interocular distance, very important. If you had set it for full scale, then it would look like a model because you would instantly see the depth. Um, this wasn't an in-camera shot with a forced perspective, so we didn't have split scales or anything, which would have completely not worked. Uh, this, the, the background is being uh, added digitally uh, beyond the, the initial train station. But yeah, it had a, it was, it was pretty, I mean, I sound a little uh, overly glowing about it, but it was pretty cool, because to put on a pair of glasses and look at a monitor and, and look at this image that looks as real as it does live, but it did have the sense of scale and had the sense of weight, especially once played back at, um, at the, at the uh, correct frame rate. Um, which is something interesting too, is that we've been shooting these models now with digital cameras. You know, we still shoot things with motion picture film, but the idea of shooting a, an event, especially a big event like this, with a digital camera is you get to watch the playback immediately as it would look. You can even do a temp color correction and, and it looks quite, quite good. Uh, I mean, certainly we'd watch video playback in the old days, but you were doing a simulated frame and a lot of time it was like step and it would look, but this is like, this is what's gonna look like in the movie, what do you think, does this work? And so that was pretty cool. And we did it twice, so at least anything on the first take we could always go back and tweak. Because literally like, was it last weekend or before you celebrated your 16th year since you? Yes, 16 years, I feel really old, it's uh, terrible. <laughs> now, uh, yeah, we've actually, it's funny because um, I'm always asked a question about when miniatures are gonna sort of like, okay, when are we never gonna do these, uh, these shots anymore? I get a lot of questions from the employees, of course. And, uh, you know, honestly, um, for me, miniature effects, digital effects, all the effects are just a tool. You know, it's just a way to help tell the story in the picture. It's a visual way to expand realism or to expand uh, the breadth of a story without having to focus on one specific technique. Um, I, I think that with models in general, it's still a great way to sort of quickly and cost effectively blend, also blending with digital work, uh, help create an environment that looks pretty real and has a sense of believability, particularly on the, when it comes to um, you know, uh, weight and mass and lighting. I always say with miniature effects it's a big cheat because we get the light for free, the gravity for free, and the inertia for free. We don't have to figure out what it does. We do have to kind of second guess what it's going to do and sometimes engineer things to work, as I said earlier, a little faster, a little more violently to accommodate a, uh, an event. So did I hear you correctly in saying that you had two shots of this? Because I know we've talked in the past and sometimes you've only had one opportunity to destroy a beautiful piece of your work. Yeah, this is, well, well I, I, everybody always asks, aren't you sad when you blow it up? I said, no, because if it doesn't blow up, then we did a bad job. Um, no, in the case of this show, 
similar going back to another uh, Martin Scorsese picture we, we had a, a great time on uh, was Aviator. This is very similar where it isn't a, a complete detonation model. It's not like you're taking the engine of the train and blowing it to smithereens and having a complete second take. These are the models that we've sort of engineered and been very fortunate to kind of come up with ways. If we had to do a third take, we could have easily done a third take. We had to do a fourth take. Because what's breaking in the shot is a small section of balcony, a small section of railing, uh, some window panes. I mean, certainly painstaking to build all these components, but the bulk of the, the, the structure of the building, this, this train station, which was about 20 by 20 feet, and the bulk of the train survives every crash. There's nothing happening um, when the undercarriage uh, that Scott had engineered and when the, the wooden frames and all the set pieces that Forrest had engineered, they were designed to be really stout. And the only parts that actually break are the parts that are supposed to be broken. So really, you've got a table full of components that then, I'm simplifying it a bit, but you have a table full of components that get plugged back in so that once you do your crash, it's like, okay, strip out all the breakaway and put a new piece in. It's all tied back in so it doesn't feel like it's just a plug. But essentially, that's kind of what it is. So doing two takes on something like this is, um, quite frankly, simple or simple by comparison than a project uh, my partner Ian supervised way back, uh, or last year I guess it was, uh, Inception, where we had two entirely complete takes of the building. That's a little more complicated, so. Yes, we did a piece on that on FX Guide, and uh, it was incredibly popular. Yeah, oh, it's it 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 a fantastic shot, and, uh, and it's great, but. But give me the timeline on this uh, effect, how long you had to build, and mm -hmm. then also I'd really like to know what the reset time was between take one and take two. Uh, we had eight weeks to do everything. That was for from go. Um, one of the things about miniature work uh, and any construction, frankly, is very much, it's like first unit production or first unit prep. You're, you have so many people, so much materials, and so much time to get it done. In this case, it was eight weeks. And when Ian and I budget the various shows we supervise, we always anticipate, okay, um, this feels like it should take 10 to 12 weeks. This feels like it should take eight weeks. Um, sometimes a, a, a studio will come back to us and say, we have to shoot on this day, and then that compromises certain things. In this, there wasn't any sort of, you know, they did have a target because some of the pieces that they wanted to get into the cut, um, but uh, we had a eight weeks, and it was actually not like rushed to the end. It was actually quite quite well uh, well orchestrated. I was very pleased with it. It was actually, not to, not to downplay it, but it really went very, very well. I mean, everybody had a great time on the project and it just, everything dovetailed in beautifully. There wasn't any challenge, really. We spoke to Rob about around the time of Aviator and he was saying that uh, he certainly had a good time with the pre-visualization of mm -hmm. the sequences because, quite frankly, Aviator didn't have a vast budget for some no. of the stuff they were trying to pull off. No. Um, and I'm wondering, did that translate into this? Did you have a really good idea on every shot uh, because of yeah. previous? The original shot we were talk spoken to about was the train exiting the, the station. There's a bunch of lead-up work that I ended up seeing a, a, a previous later that majority of it's digital, but we ended up doing a lot of pickups where there's a newsstand that gets taken out by a train, the, the same train. Um, there is a, a support post of the, um, the station, as well as a luggage cart and some benches that all get plowed through. So we built a, a fair amount of breakaway flooring and did all these insert pickups, which were done at a later date. So the previous, though, Rob had very well engineered. It was pretty well laid out. Um, so when it was time to do the crash, I literally took the Maya models of what he had sort of engineered uh, for the crash and laid them over our Rhino models to make sure everything sort of lined up, got all their lenses, compared the lenses. It was pretty turnkey for the, for the previous on it. It actually was no, no issue or challenge for us. And the same with Aviator. Aviator uh, that, that sequence, shot for shot, is what Rob prevised. In fact, a lot of people say, oh, it must have been on the day. I mean, certainly, 
he had put other cameras and there were other images we all captured. But I mean, I still have a copy of the previous somewhere. If you look at the previous and look at the cut film, it's pretty much the same thing. It isn't like, oh, this doesn't look like, I mean, it is shot for shot, which to me is always the exciting thing about miniatures is you can use previous to tailor the shots to that. And in fact, what we've done in the past is uh, for some of our digital work, we'll take the pre, we'll, we'll build something in uh, usually Rhino because I need CAD accurate data so we can build the physical models. So we'll build something in Rhino, then take that, hand it off to our Maya guys, they'll do the previs in Maya. Now we, we didn't do the previs on this show, but I'll use uh, Maya to do engineer all the previs, we build the models based on the previs angles, shoot the models based on that, and then we can use the previs to do pre-comps of the same because everything's kind of one continuous pipeline. Uh, in terms of, uh, to answer the question, I got a little off track, but to answer the question regarding how long it took to do the turnaround, we shot it, um, we, we prepped, we had about a day of pre-light and prep. We shot the next day, and then the next morning uh, we did our redress, and then shot, we had like, um, I, I think we had a day between the two, the two takes, uh, if I'm not mistaken. I think I, I gave ourselves a full day. We probably could have shot at the end of the day on that second day, um, but it was like, you know what, let's just take our time, because it was, the problem is we had essentially an eight and a half, almost nine foot tall breakaway full real annealed glass window panel that was you know nine and a half feet by like seven, eight feet wide. So it was not like we wanted to rush around and uh, have that fall on somebody, a little dangerous. What's exciting uh, about this sequence and the sequence in Aviator and the stuff we did in Shutter Island, any other, is it when you work on a Martin Scorsese film, you know that that film will be talked about in film schools 10 years from now. It, it, you're, you're, I don't, it sounds very cliche, but you really, being a part of creating some historical documentation of, of, some, of a cinematic moment. And I mean, we work on lots of films, and they're really great. The studios are terrific to work with, and, and you know, the action films we work on, or the, the science fiction pictures, or the superhero films are all terrific. But there's something about creating miniature effects and visual effects to help tell the story that aren't just for an event. It is like, well, this is just a key part of the story. And in this, in this picture, it's, it's a dream sequence. It's not even really like, it's not like it's the climax or anything, but it's this dream sequence. And how do you, but it has to be terrifying. It has to be as terrifying for Hugo, or I should say for the audience, as it is for Hugo. So to do it the way we had, we, the techniques that we'd used in those kind of moments, give it a certain realism and a certain sense of terror and, and, and kind of puts the audience on the edge of their seat. But it's again, to support the story. It's not about, you know, oh, we need something big and action adventure sort of thing happening right now. So what do we do? Let's blow some stuff up, which, we do that too, but um, on, a, on, on, on Martin Scorsese pictures, it's always exciting because you know that there's a sort of, it stands the test of time, there's gonna be a longevity, and the films are, are really great. I mean, I, every film I've ever worked on with, with both Marty and Rob has been one of those things that it's like I always remember because it was a great experience and it was a lot of fun. And a big thank you to New Deal for looking after us so well in LA. While we were filming, they were actually filming explosions on the stage, which made for a fun time. And don't forget, you can keep up to date with what we're up to by following us on Twitter at FX Guide News. So until next time, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.